We know more about the Apostle Peter than we do all the other disciples of Jesus. If you look at the New Testament biographies, you'll find that he's quoted more. Uh, more there's more stories told about him, more conversations that he had with Jesus than the other 11 disciples combined. Now, not all these conversations are pleasant because sometimes Jesus criticized Peter, but other times he affirmed and encouraged him as well. And it seems like Peter was one who kind of understood Jesus best. Long before the others connected the dots, um, it was Peter who said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He understood Jesus' divine identity. We know so much about Peter that I think if we could recreate or bring back all 12 disciples, put them in a room, we'd walk in, we'd almost immediately recognize who Peter was. He's so memorable. And maybe because of that, we're also drawn to him. He's authentic and real. He has a big personality. He's the kind of guy you'd want to hang with. And we also, because we know his faults so well, he's less intimidating than maybe some of the others might have been. We know that with all of our faults and foibles that maybe Peter would get us. Of all the stories we have about Peter in the Bible, the sequence we're going to talk about today is both the most difficult and probably the most important and certainly the most memorable story that we have in the New Testament biographies about Peter. But before we tell that story, I need to give you some of the background. This is the part that some of which is memorable, some of which may not be, before we get to the final story that we're going to look at today. Now, the way we need to set this up is to understand that during the last week of Jesus' life, he had a meal with his disciples. It's the meal in which he gave us, memorably, the celebration that we here at City Church celebrate each month, the tradition we call communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And it was that evening that he told them, reminded them one more time, that the time for his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion had come. And then he made a prediction. This wasn't a pleasant one, but he said, you will all fall away. In other words, upon his arrest, every one of them would abandon him. And to Peter specifically, he used his given name of Simon. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And Peter was offended. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Mark adds that Peter said, even if all the others fall away, I will not. And then he said, I will lay down my life for you. So Jesus adds to his prediction. He says, uh, well, if you're ready to die for me, I tell you for certain that before a rooster crows, you will say three times that you don't know me. So what he's saying is, Peter, you may be brash and confident right now, but it's overconfidence. But Peter really believed it. He really believed that he would stand up to whatever pressure would be there. But as it turned out, Jesus knew Peter better than he knew himself. When dinner ended, they went all together across the valley from the city of Jerusalem to a place called the Mount of Olives, where they went into a garden and Jesus prayed. And there it is that he was very honest with his Father in heaven. He said, I know what's ahead and I'm not willing to go there. And yet, in the end, he submitted to what God's will for him was. When he finished that prayer and they'd finished the time they had there together, a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the religious authorities came to arrest him. We mentioned a few weeks ago, this is probably a group of between four and 600 people who came to find Jesus. The disciples saw what was happening and initially they had a burst of energy and a great deal of courage. In fact, Peter grabbed a sword, he swung at one of the soldiers, the soldier twist, twisted his head and all that happened is Peter sliced off the man's ear. And Jesus said, stop it. And he healed the man's ear on the spot. It's then that John tells us that a attachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, the high priest, that year. And then Mark tells us that 
what Jesus predicted happened. It says that everyone deserted him and fled. Now, Peter and John did something the rest of them didn't do, and that is they approached back to try to get near Jesus again, although they stayed at quite a distance, um, to see what would happen. And that's when the problems started. So you may have heard that Peter denied Jesus three times. Here's the first of these denials. It says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple, most likely John, was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus, or John, excuse me, with Jesus, excuse me, into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Aren't you one of this man's disciples, she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Then the second denial. Meanwhile, it says Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, Aren't you one of his disciples? He denied it, saying, I am not. And then a third time, it says, One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, we're told, Peter denied it. This time, it was a Galilean accent that gave him away. And Mark even adds further detail by saying that Peter started cussing up a blue streak in order to um, reinforce the deception. Now, this isn't an all-at-once failure because this, Luke tells us that there were probably an hour or two between each of these denials. So Peter had time to think about what he was doing, to consider what was happening. And yet he denied Jesus anyway. Now, I think Peter was sincere when he told Jesus about 12 hours before that even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. He was even willing to fight, but this time, when the time came, he failed. When the words left Peter's mouth the third time, John tells us, at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And then Luke tells us that at that moment also, the Lord, that's Jesus, turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The effect on Peter of this experience is shattering. Jesus didn't speak to him in anger. In fact, he didn't say anything. He just looked at him with a mixture of love and disappointment. And then Jesus turned and went to the cross. After seeing Peter at his worst, he was willing to continue and carry on what God had given him to do, to go to his death on the cross. By the way, the rest of the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus sees us the same way that he sees Peter. That he looks too on us with that understanding stare when we fail. He sees all our faults and failures, and yet he was willing to go to the cross for us as well. St. Paul said it this way in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated or demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter didn't know this yet, though. Um, You can imagine, uh, you can't imagine, actually, a more complete failure than Peter on Friday morning. It wasn't just a moral failure. It was a complete spiritual breakdown. Everything he'd been about, everything he'd committed himself to, he denied. So for three years, he'd been with Jesus. He'd walked, talked, laughed, celebrated, even cried with Jesus, and now he fails him. He'd gone public with saying that, I'm going to stick with you to the end. I'll be the last man standing, even if it means a fight to the death. Now, one of the ironies in all of this is that early on in their friendship, Jesus had given him a nickname. His given name was Simon, but he said, I'm going to call you Peter, which we know means the rock. Now, in just a matter of hours, though, Peter had cracked under pressure, and you could just say, well, that's some rock. It's not hard to imagine the heartache and guilt that Peter felt. 
And some of you know what Peter was feeling. In fact, really, all of us know. We too have done something that we know was wrong, something we know we shouldn't have, something we may have even vowed that we would not do. It might be drugs or porn or anger or unfaithfulness or greed or laziness, something maybe that's plagued us for a very long time. And it's one of the sickest feelings in all of human existence, and that's exactly where Peter was, where he felt. He felt totally and utterly like he had messed things up. The rest of Friday on into Saturday were awful. All of Jesus' disciples had deserted Jesus. Peter had denied him, and now Jesus was dead by about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. But then Sunday morning started differently. Several of the women who followed Jesus went to the tomb to properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. Some of you know that the Jewish sundown on Friday was the end of the day, and so to observe the Sabbath, they suspended that particular part of what they intended to do. But when they arrived at the tomb on Sunday morning, they found that the stone had been rolled away, and an angel told them that Jesus was no longer there, that he was alive. Jesus appeared to Mary and later to Peter and John and then to the other disciples. And you have to wonder, where does that leave Peter? He he failed miserably, and now what, what does he think he's going to do? He knew he deserved complete rejection, maybe even eternal damnation. He longed for forgiveness and hoped somehow, some way, that he could be loved and accepted. And he hoped for a second chance and probably thought to himself, there's no way after what I've done that Jesus will ever receive me back again. Now, all of that is a very long introduction to the story that we're going to look at today, the final encounter that Jesus and Peter have. And so you may wonder, well, between what happened over that holy week, ending with Sunday evening when Peter saw Jesus for the first time, what did Peter do next? And the answer is he did what many of us would do. He gave up. He figured that Jesus was through with him, so he went back what he'd been doing three years earlier when he first met Jesus. He'd been in a partnership, a business venture, a fishing venture, and so he went back, and that's what he did. He must have assumed that he would be disqualified from doing anything significant with his life from that point on. In fact, it seems that what he was doing was trying to avoid contact with Jesus. He really didn't want to raise any issues and find out what Jesus thought of what he had done. And all that brings us to the story that we have for today in John chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of John 21. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1653, page 1653, although the words will also be on the screen. There, beginning with verse 1 in John 21, it says, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Simon Peter went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it, some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153 in all. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter had checked out. He had a nagging sense that things would never quite be the same, that he'd screwed up so badly that really he was probably not going to be useful, at least to Jesus, for the rest of his life. And the bad news here is that Peter had disowned Jesus. But the good news that we see in this story is that Jesus never disowned Peter. But he didn't know that yet, at least until Jesus took him on this walk or had this conversation with him around the fire. Notice it's Jesus who took the initiative with Peter. Until now, Peter didn't know where he stood. He must have wondered what Jesus wanted to say say to him. Is this it? Does he want to give me the pink slip or worse? But Jesus instead asks Peter three questions. Actually, the same question three times. Probably to mirror the denials that uh, Peter had made against him. And the question was, do you love me? I want you to notice what Jesus didn't ask Peter. He didn't say, what were you thinking? He didn't say, can you promise me this will never happen again? Instead, he simply said, do you love me? Why that question? Well, what Jesus is doing with Peter is he's just simply saying, do you want to be in a relationship with me or not? And that's really the question the Bible asks of all of us. God wants to be in a relationship with us. He takes initiative with us. He wants to forgive us, to restore us. And the question is, do we want to receive that? Do we want to be in a relationship with him? And so by asking the question three times, the message started to sink in. Suddenly, Peter began to understand that Jesus was offering him a second chance. What sealed the deal is what Jesus said to Peter next. He said, first, feed my sheep, then secondly, a little differently, take care of my sheep, and then feed my sheep. So what's going on? Jesus is telling Peter, first of all, you've been forgiven. And so, by the way, are we. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for every sin, every failure, every mistake, every screw-up, everything we've ever done, yours, Peter's, and mine. And then he tells him to get busy. Feed my sheep. He's telling Peter to get back in the game. Don't run from me. Don't run from the task I've given to you. Don't even go back to your comfortable life. Instead, follow me. And the message that Peter needed to understand, and we do too, is that sin doesn't have to have the last word. That God is a God of forgiveness, a God of second chances and third chances and 34th chances. That God is a God of new beginnings no matter how many times they are needed. So we have a choice. Will we allow yesterday's regret to control us or will we allow God to renew us and give us a future? So what do we do then with regret? The first thing we do is accept the fact that the past cannot change. At some level it's counterproductive sometimes to keep rehashing things. There's no point in wondering how things would be different if we had done X, Y, or Z, or not done A, B, or C. And then what we need to do is to confess our sins to God, to be honest with him. That may not be easy because we may have to own up to some hard truths. And then we may have to even take some steps, maybe to reconcile with others, those that we've hurt. But we do it. And what we do when we do is we find that we're no longer slaves to the past. And then what Jesus tells Peter, and he tells us too, is to get busy. There's nothing Satan would love more than to make you think that your past disqualifies you for the future. Peter's past didn't 
determine his future, and neither does yours. So learn from your past mistakes and move on. Now, I'll be honest, because sometimes regrets don't heal overnight. Sometimes it can take a long time, and sometimes even scars remain. But the way to move forward is to give our regrets to Jesus, to receive the forgiveness he offers us, and to trust him with the future. Now, I want to be clear about my hopes for today. I don't want you to leave feeling hopeless. I don't want to dial up the shame. Some people are hard-hearted and unrepentant, but most are not. So what we need to understand is that what God wants us to do is to be obedient, to understand our struggles, and to understand that he graciously forgives us. When we've sinned, one of the devil's tactics is to try to get us to think that, uh, keep us down. Satan would love for us to wallow in our guilt and to make us think that we're unworthy, forever stuck with plan B or C, powerless to be used by God. And the truth is, we need to own our sin. There may even be consequences, but we shouldn't believe Satan's lies. Some say Satan's primary objective is to try to eliminate guilt, the idea that we've even done anything wrong. And he probably does that sometimes, but I think far more often his strategy is to use our guilt to make us feel hopeless. The great tragedy of sin is not that it happened, but when Satan uses it to strip us of the feeling that God loves us and can use us. So when we sin, we need to hear that every sin we've ever committed, past, present, or future, is covered by what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. When we confess, we need to know that we have a gracious God who cares enough to listen to our confession and relieve us of our burden of sin. And we need to understand that when we commit to live the life that God has for us, the one we've been designed to live, that God intends to use us. So when Satan accuses you, remember what Jesus says. I love you. I'll heal you. I'll use you. So confess what you've done. Commit with God's help not to do it again. And then move on and let God use you because he will. That's good news for each one of us, but also requires something of us as a church. Far too often churches implicitly or sometimes even explicitly um, shun sinners. In the interest of being clear on sin, some churches give off the impression that everyone has to be a saint, that no sinners are allowed. And that leads to some dysfunctional behavior, corporately and individually. We end up concealing our sin to one another and to others. We even dare not be sinners, thinking that others will think poorly of us. And so we're horrified then when a real sinner appears in our midst. Too often, we remain alone then in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is, and we just ought to be honest with one another, that we are all sinners. We're great desperate sinners. But the good news is that Jesus takes initiative with us, just like he did with Peter. He tells us to come as we are to a God who loves us and offers us grace. He doesn't want anything from us, not penance or sacrifice. All he wants is us. And in Christ, God has come to save sinners. So we need to stop this notion that churches are full of saints. I hate to disabuse you of that idea. It's not true. Before we go, I want to mention one other piece of the equation, and it's an important one. And that has to do with why things like this happen in the first place. Why do we sin? Why, for example, did Peter so spectacularly fail? And many have offered ideas. They say that Peter bowed to the pressure of fear of the authorities. Although, I'm not sure about that one because just a few hours before, he was ready to chop someone's head off. Others suggest that he was disillusioned by Jesus' unwillingness to take to control and seize power, to drive out the Romans, to overthrow the nation's leadership. That may probably closer to the truth, although we, we really don't know. The important thing is that we begin to examine our own hearts and try to understand why it is that we're doing the things that we do. 
Years ago, um, I read something that I've thought about a lot over the years, and that is that sometimes it's not actually what we're doing that is really driving. It's not necessarily the behavior. It's the sin beneath the sin. In other words, there's some motivation, some, something in our lives that is driving whatever it is we're doing. So it may be sometimes inappropriate to focus just specifically on the behavior, but to try to understand the motivational structure beneath the sin. And we'll maybe make more progress. So let me give you just some examples, abstract examples first. And that is that it may be that you struggle with anger. Now, the reason may be that you get mad so often at home or at work is because either of an unhealthy need for power or for success. So when someone thwarts that at work, maybe you just go off. Or you may have a tendency to bounce from one unhealthy relationship to another. Maybe as a teenager, as soon as you broke up with someone, you were on to the next boyfriend or girlfriend. And that comes because of an unhealthy need to find your identity and meaning in a relationship. Or it may be a problem with credit card or debt in general because you have this unhealthy need to find your self-worth being defined by how much stuff you have. And that itself may come because you want to look good to your peers. That's really important to you. Behind many sins is the need for approval, comfort, control, or power, and it leads us to make mistakes in relationship, in our careers, in the way we spend money, the way we use our time, and how important it is for us to look good to others. I've mentioned before that all of us have our own struggles, and I have mine. You know, one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is tendency to work too much, and I've come to learn that the sin beneath my sin is a desire to be successful. It goes all the way back, I think, like everything, to middle school. You know, middle school, <laughs> I didn't feel all that great. I kind of felt a little bit insecure. And the way I thought of compensating for that was to try to do a lot of things that made other people think that I was important. I was with a gathering of pastors one time, and I don't know how we got into this conversation, but one of the guys at the table said, you know, hey, he said, my problem is that I'm a people pleaser. I really like the approval of others. I want to be liked. And so he said, because of that, I have trouble confronting problems in the church. Um, if there's a problem, I think, well, you know, if I say something, people won't like me. And so he said, I've really become too nice. And then he turned to me, I don't know why, but he said, is that your problem? <laughs> I said, well, actually not. Um, I'm wired a little differently. I said, I don't want this to sound bad, but I don't really care if people like me. I just want to be respected. I don't like conflict any more than you do. And by the way, I do like to be liked. But, um, <laughs> but I like to see things succeed. So when necessary, I am willing to take on conflict. So the sin between, beneath the sin for me is different than it was for him. For him, it's approval. For me, it's success. And it can be even come idle. So I don't want to spend too much time playing amateur psychologist. You can do that yourself. But one of the ways to find the sin beneath the sin is to realize or to think about the times when you respond emotionally to a setback. And think about the times when you get angry or really deeply disappointed. That can give you a clue where that sin beneath the sin may be in your life. It's normal for us to feel, say, disappointed after we lose a job or to feel um, really sad when a relationship ends. But if we're devastated and we cannot move on, maybe the job or relationship means too much to us. So whatever comes alongside or replaces God at the center of our lives needs to be confessed. It will otherwise lead us into dysfunctional behavior. During Peter's walk on the beach, something significant happened to Peter deep down inside. Before he failed, he took pride in being the guy who could carry his own weight, the guy Jesus could count on to be strong and to come through for him. 
And then he failed. And I'm not going to say that it was good that he failed, but good came out of his failure. After his failure and restoration by Jesus, Peter became a more tender, compassionate person. He understood his heart and the sin that so often creeps in. But more importantly, he knew Jesus better than he ever had before. Before he failed, Peter saw himself as courageous and strong, someone who could do everything on his own. But after, he knew his desperate need for Jesus. Tradition has, and I don't know if we really believe this, but probably emotionally it's true, is that a tear glistened in Peter's eye from that point on. He never forgot his sin. It made him a more tender-hearted, compassionate, and humble man, one God could use powerfully to build his church. In the book of Acts, we meet Peter again, and this time he's a different person. He's no longer cocky and as confident as he was before. His brashness, though, has been replaced by courage and faith. Only a few days after this conversation that Jesus and Peter had on the beach near the Lake of Galilee, Peter preached to a large crowd in Jerusalem, and I mean a really large crowd because it says that 3,000 people that day decided to follow Jesus, some of whom had cried out just weeks earlier for his crucifixion. So if you're looking back and you're discouraged by missed opportunities or ashamed of failures or weighed down by guilt because of sin, turn to Jesus and tell him like Peter was asked to. Tell him you love him. Ask him to heal you and get busy with the tasks that he's given to you to do and know that he will use you because that's what Jesus does. Let's pray. Father, may we honestly open up to you and confess any way in which we've let you down, any way in which we, uh, too, may have denied you in something we've done or thought of doing or failed to do. May we not hesitate in coming back to you with humble hearts. May we confess our sins to you, knowing that you have already reached out to us in love with the words of forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And may we at City Church be a community of grace, sinners saved by your love, helping one another to become all that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.